My name's Heath Lambert, and um, I'm the executive director of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Uh, that is a new name for us. We've been around for almost 40 years. We were historically called NANC, the National Association of Nuthetic Counselors, but we changed the name a few years ago because nobody knew what nuthetic meant. <laughs> and uh, if, you, if you actually find out what it means, uh, it's actually a very limited kind of counseling that we don't endorse. So we thought by the time we're having to explain our name two or three different times to everybody, uh, it's not a very good name. So uh, so we're the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors now, or ACBC, but uh, still doing the same thing. We've been around for 40 years uh, certifying uh, people who are competent to do uh, biblical counseling. The biblical counseling movement has been something of the wild, wild west of uh, counseling with no with not a lot of standards and kind of this person doing this thing over here and that person doing that thing over here. And so um, our main goal is to sort of standardize best practices within the biblical counseling movement. So we're a certifying organization. And uh, so I'm, I'm the executive director there and have been doing that since 2013. So I'm still pretty new. And then I'm also the Associate Professor of Biblical Counseling at Southern Seminary. So those are my two hats. Uh, but the reason I'm here is because of ACBC. We, uh, we have an annual conference every year on topic that's relevant to counseling issues and uh, host people from all over the country and the world at that conference. This year that's in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find, if you're interested in that, you can find out more on that on our website at biblicalcounseling.com. Uh, our topic for this year at the annual conference is uh, homosexuality, compassion, care, and counsel for struggling people. We really want to look at how do you do ministry to people and their families who are struggling with this problem and the world is kind of caving in on, uh, on the Christian position about that. So that's we're paying attention to that. Um, but the other thing we do is we have regional events throughout the year. We have 15 a year where we partner with local churches to do uh, lay-level counseling training. Um, and uh, to, we want to raise up an army of counselors in local churches all across the country and world. And we're really glad to be partnering for the next couple of years with Mission Hills uh, to be doing training events uh, at, uh, at their church. Our first one of those is... Um, uh, is this weekend, and we'll have two more this year, and then more uh, next year. And we've got uh, several hundred people coming to those, which we're really we're really glad about that. But one of the things that it's really important for me to do is to reach out uh, to the counseling community here, or at least part of it uh, here in this area. The biblical counseling movement has not had a great reputation of playing well in the sandbox with uh, people who approach counseling from different perspectives. And that is, that's not my heart at all. Uh, my heart is that we could develop relationships and try to find common ground and uh, try to advance the kingdom of Christ together as best we can. I don't, I'm under no illusion that there's not going to be any discrepancies in the way that we approach counseling, but um, you know, the Bible says that they'll know we're Christians by our love. And so if we can, if we can speak the truth and love to one another and get together in a room and uh, get to know one another and say, hey, we're all, we're all on the same team. We might, I might emphasize it a little bit differently over here and you might emphasize it a little bit differently over there. You're, you might think I'm wrong about some things and um, uh, I might think you're wrong about some things, but that's the same situation with me and my wife and we still love each other. So... <laughs> Um, uh, so I, I want us to try to 
nurture relationship here. That's my uh, that's that's my goal, and so I'm really glad that you guys are here. It's kind of a it's a motley crew in some ways. We've got uh, we've got pastors that are here, and we've got uh, lay counselors in local churches. Some of you are in private practice uh, in counseling here in the area. Some of you are counseling professors at Denver Seminary. So it's it's a there's a broad swath of people, and in one sense, I was saying to Josh, in one sense it'd be easier to just take one group and talk to that group and then another group and talk to that group, but that would miss the whole point of what we're trying to do here. So uh, so I appreciate you uh, receiving the invitation to be here and uh, listen to me prattle on for a few minutes and then hopefully have a time of Q&A and a time to get to know one another. And we'll be out here um, at least six more times in the coming years. So I look forward to uh, connecting with you. I won't be out here all those times, but I look forward to connecting with you, and hopefully this will be the beginning of friendship and, and cooperation. So what um, the, the topic that I'm supposed to talk about for a few minutes is, um, I think some of you saw this, it's called Understanding the Differences and Overlap Between Biblical Counseling and Clinical Therapy. So that's actually a really huge topic. Uh, the people in this room will probably be more equipped to understand that than, than anybody. But I'm going to try to take a few minutes to give you my take on, on that issue. And I, I like the title. I didn't come up with the title, but I love the title because it, uh, it allows us to have an honest conversation. It allows us to say, hey, there's areas where we're overlapping, and then there's areas where we're, where we're disagreeing. So I'm going to pray that we can speak the truth in love, and in fact, I'll pray that right now. Father in heaven, we are thankful to you for all of your provision to us. We all woke up this morning. We all put on clothes. We've all just eaten. Um, We've experienced many other blessings than that. But as we sit here today, I know that all of those things are true. And we thank you for them. You tell us that your mercies are new every morning. And so we thank you for that. And Father, we thank you mostly for the mercy that you've given to us in Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life to earn our obedience, who died a brutal death on the cross to pay the penalty of sin in our life, and who resurrected from the grave triumphantly to demonstrate his power over sin and death and the devil. And so, Father, I thank you that we can know him. I pray that... Uh, This morning, as we think about him and as we think about serving his people, that you would give us love for Jesus Christ, that you would grow our trust in him, that you'd give us love for one another, and that you would give us love for the hurting and troubled people that you send to us for care. I pray that we would all, each and every one of us, um, grow up in wisdom and love for how to offer that care that is truly uniquely Christian, uh, that people would know we are Christians by our love, and that would be manifested uh, in the counseling room, if no place else. And Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the differences and overlap between biblical counseling and clinical therapy, this is my crack at it. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to answer that question. I'm going to answer it the long way around. Uh, there are a few observations that I want to try and make. Um, before uh, I get to specifically answering that question. Here's the, the main observation that, that I want to make and then try to prove, and from that, talk about overlap and differences. So the, I think the main point I would want to make is that counseling 
is theological. It's a theological discipline. Counseling always happens with respect to theology. And that sounds really strange to some people because we, we think um, sometimes that theology is what pastors need or missionaries need or a theology professor needs and psychology is what counselors need. That can, I think that if you just, if you asked everybody in your churches, just, hey, um, who needs to learn theology? They would say pastors and preachers and missionaries and professors. And who needs to learn psychology? I think they'd say counselors. I think that's just a, a pretty obvious distinction that's out there. The, the problem with that is, is that for all of the Christian church, every Christian that's ever thought about it has always thought that theology was about all of life. Uh, as Christians, we don't ever get to check our theology at the door of anything. Uh, uh, because God lays claim to every area of our life. And if you think about some of the conflicts, some of the things that gets people most upset uh, in your church, you don't even have to talk about counseling. You can, you can start talking about areas where people don't want God speaking into their life. So in your church, I mean, you say to somebody, um, you, uh, you can't commit adultery with this man. And I mean, I've had furious men and women say, who do you, who do you think you are telling me? This is my bedroom. This is my private life. But we don't, we don't speak into those things because we're nosy. We speak into those things because we believe that God has spoken into those things and makes demands of our life. So we could, we could spend a lot of time just talking about theology is about all of life because God speaks into all of life, but we don't have time to do all that. So what I want to do is just take a few minutes to say that counseling, at least counseling, is theological, and that requires a definition of counseling. Uh, and here's my definition of counseling. It's pretty simple. Um, I think counseling is when a person with questions and problems and trouble seeks help from somebody they believe have, has answers, solutions, and help. So a person with questions and problems and trouble seeks assistance from somebody they believe has answers and solutions and help. I think that's what I think that's what counseling is. Now, all kinds of people could map all kinds of presuppositions about counseling onto that definition, and that's, that's on purpose. Um, I mean for it to be something that everybody could kind of si- sign off on. So what my answers and solutions and help are might be a little different than yours, but we're all trying to sit with people and offer answers and solutions and help to, to the dilemmas that they face. And I'd just make two observations about that that definition. First of all, if that definition is correct, it means that counseling happens all the time and there's not a thing in the world we can do about it. In fact, counseling happens way more than when somebody comes into our office, uh, fills out uh, an advised consent form, and um, uh, meets with us for an hour or 55-minute hour or whatever it is. Counseling is happening uh, right now all over the place. It's, um, there is a couple someplace uh, where the wife is discouraged about something and she's saying, honey, what do you think I should do? And as he starts to offer answers and solutions and help, he's counseling her. Um, there are um, people going to see their pastor right now. The pastor does not think he's a counselor. The pastor thinks he's a preacher. But this couple wants to know if they should stay married or get divorced. And they're going to ask him. And he's going to be a counselor to them. Um, it's happening when... Uh, a fourth grader 
goes up to his mom this afternoon and says, hey mom, the kids at school were mean to me today. And she's going to start talking. She's becoming the counselor to her fourth grader. So counseling is happening all the time. Uh, and a second observation I'd make about that is that counseling only works when the person who has the questions and problems and trouble, um, when they believe that the person they go to has answers and solutions and help. So you might have all the answers and solutions and help that it's possible to have, but if they don't like your answers and solutions and help, if they don't trust you, then they're not going, counseling is not going to happen. You might be right, but, um, but it doesn't matter because they don't trust you. So counseling is happening all the time. And there's not a thing in the world we can do about it. Uh, but it only happens when there is a relationship of trust and the person with the struggle uh, extends faith to the person who's speaking into that difficulty. If that's what counseling is, I, I want to say next, what does counseling require? And again, I'm trying to demonstrate that I think that we're talking about something that is intrinsically theological. What does counseling require? Well, let me say first what it does not require. Uh, counseling does not require any of the trappings of professionalism. Now, professionalism makes us feel comfortable when we have, so I just mentioned, I even kind of was critical of the biblical counseling movement a moment ago, that it's been kind of the wild, wild west. I mean, I get to say I'm a biblical counselor over here, you get to say you're a biblical counseling over here, and there are no standards, and that's a little scary. Um, so professionalism, standardization makes us feel comfortable. When there's training programs, when there's certifications, when there's licensure, when there's enforcement, we like that, but it's not required to do counseling, right? Because if what I just said is true, then the mom is counseling her fourth grader, the pastor's counseling his married couple in his church, the husband's counseling his wife. It's happening all the time. So you don't need professionalization. You don't need standardization to be a good counselor. That's the first thing that it does not require. Here's another thing it doesn't require, and this is even more uncomfortable. It does not require that you be any good at counseling. Uh, you can be a counselor and be an absolutely wretched counselor. Um, there are, there are pastors in this country today who will send a woman with a black eye back to her abusive husband. It's going to happen today. Um, there will be a woman's best friend, and they're going to have lunch today. And that best friend is going to tell this woman that she should leave her husband. You should leave him. Leave that pig. And there's no biblical basis to do it. She just, there's no, there's no objective reason to leave, but she's just going to offer bad counsel. Um, there's going to be, on a college campus somewhere, a friend listening to his buddy describe a serious struggle with depression, and that friend is going to blow him off. You know, he'll be all right. And he's not going to know that the same struggles that he mentioned that he heard from his friend are going to be the same struggles that he would list in a suicide note a week from now. I mean, it's as sobering as those realities are, they underline the fact that if counseling is happening all the time with everybody, you don't have to be any good at it at all to do it. Uh, so this is uncomfortable, but it is the reality. So if, if we don't need professionalism, and if we don't even need to be good, then what is required? of counseling. I think what is required, um, the only thing you need to do it, not to do it well, but the only thing you need to do it is some way of seeing the world. Some people call this a worldview. 
some vision of life that understands the dilemma that people have and that would inform a solution that would be offered to people. That worldview, that vision of life, that way of seeing reality, that will be wise or foolish. It'll be right or wrong. You'll be more or less aware of it. But you, whenever you offer these answers and solutions and help, you're speaking out of some understanding of who we are as people, what ought to be right with us as people, what is wrong with us as people, and what it would take to fix it. I mean, you, if you're going to say, do this, or don't do that, or let's think about that a little while, or that seems rash, or are you sure about that, or that's a great idea. Whenever you say those things, you're making a judgment based on the way that you think life works. And counsel is always the overflow of that. Again, it'll be good or bad, right, wrong, wise, foolish, but you, you will have it. And this is where it gets really important. That's why counseling is always theological. Because God has an opinion about all those things. God has an opinion about who we are. And he tells us who in the Bible. God has a judgment about what is wrong with us. And he tells us about that uh, in the Bible. God has a solution that he has offered to our problem, and he tells us his name in the Bible. And God authorizes a strategy of intervention to move people from problems in living to solutions in their life. God has weighed in on those things. And so our vision of reality that's the overflow of our counsel is always theological because God has spoken. You don't get to choose and I don't get to choose whether our vision of reality is theological or not. What we do get to decide is whether our vision of reality is more or less right, more or less wrong, whether Jesus agrees with it or rejects it. But we don't get to choose whether it's theological. It's that way already. So I think that counseling is theological. And I think we're doing counseling right now in a very unique time in history. Because for about 2,000 years, the wider culture understood that reality. In fact, for nearly 2,000 years, if you wanted help with a problem in living, if you wanted counseling, they didn't use that term so much back then, but if, if you wanted what we call counseling, you had to go to the village priest or the village pastor or the village rabbi. There wasn't any place else to go. Christians had uh, the corner of the market on counseling care. That changed in the late 1800s with the, uh, with the psychological revolution and the work of Sigmund Freud and Wilhelm Wundt and those kinds of guys. Um, but, and, but then what happens after, after Freud's psychoanalysis, then you get Young, and you get all these things that have just materialized. Maslow and um, family systems, uh, behaviorism, CBT. You get all of these different approaches uh, that are trying to sort out what the correct um, or what collage of these things offers a true vision of reality. The issue is with those secular thinkers is they don't know that when they weigh in on those things, they're weighing in on issues that God has already weighed in on. And so they, secular 
counselors, uh, secular therapists, haven't understood that their work is theological, but it is theological to be sure because counseling, remember it's a conversational intervention. We're not talking about the practice of medicine. We're not talking about neuroscience. We're not talking about those kinds of things. We're talking about the kind of counseling that most of us do all the time. Somebody sits down with a marriage problem. They sit down with a personal problem and we offer them wisdom into their problem. That that is a conversational, Freud called it the talking cure. That's a conversational intervention uh, where we're offering wisdom that is theological. So secularists haven't realized that, but they are, they're wading into theological water. And I want to show you that their counseling commitments are theological commitments by giving you an example of counseling success from a secular perspective and by giving you an example of counseling failure from a secular perspective. So I'll give you the, what I would call a counseling failure um, from one person's perspective. The person actually thinks it's a success, but, but I'm gonna, I'll tell you up front that I think this is a failure and you can tell me when I'm done if you, if you disagree with me or not. But I wanna talk about a guy named Peter Kramer. Most of you will know who he is. He's at the top of the food chain in the uh, psychological world, MD from Harvard Medical School author of uh, Listening to Prozac. Um, so that was a bestseller back several years ago. Uh, he's a really, really well-known man. And in a book he wrote called Moments of Engagement, he tells, he's, he's telling a lot of stories. It's a fascinating book if you haven't read it. Um, and he's telling a lot of stories of just case studies from his counseling practice. And um, one story that he tells is about a couple named Rick and Wendy. Uh, and Wendy came to him for counsel. And uh, he's telling this story of his counseling with Rick and Wendy to commend what he did. He's saying, I think this is a good example of something that happened. And, and Wendy was depressed. He thought she was suicidal. He thought that he, he said, there's, I, I really sense there was a lot of risk of suicide here. She was just overwhelmed with sorrow. She and her husband Rick had gotten married and everything was wonderful. They had a blast. Uh, then they had twins, and Rick got bored with his wife, who now was a stay-at-home mom, not exciting anymore, didn't look the way she used to, and uh, he just checked out of the home. He started going to singles bars. He found a way to earn some money illegally, and he would save that money and fly to Vegas a couple of times a year and would do heaven only knows what, because he wasn't reporting on his activities when he got back, but he, the goal was for him to save up enough money to go to Vegas, blow it all, having a blast, and then come back and start replenishing the fund to do it again. And so she was just devastated by all this, and talks to uh, Dr. Kramer, and Dr. Kramer is able to encourage her to come uh, back and bring her husband with her, and Rick comes, and uh, he says, yep, yeah, it was just as bad as she made it sound. This guy was completely checked out, and he worked on... Um, worked on an intervention with the guy who was uh, supervising him at Harvard, Banaz Jalali. And what they said is, uh, you've got to go to Vegas with your husband. Okay, so you need to get a look at the books. And they, author, they agreed in counseling that he was going to show her his private books of money that he was earning under the table. And she was going to go to Vegas with him. And she said, you have to lose more money than Rick loses. And as he describes the intervention, he says it was calculated to explode, that's his phrase, in, in a few different ways. He said, number one, I wanted her to get a look at, that, at those books so she would have an idea of assets in case there was a divorce proceeding. Two, I wanted to pry her away from the kids 
and uh, have her have some fun again, be adventurous. And third, I wanted Rick's desire to increase for her as he watched her cavorting around Vegas and having a great time. So he summarized, this is how he summarizes the case. This is a quote from, from Dr. Kramer. Most of the cure, he, he describes their coming back and he says it worked. It worked. It was perfect. And this is what he says. Most of the cure lay in our one crafted instruction, go to Vegas and lose money. If anything, our intervention was too effective. Wendy flourished so dramatically that I began to fear for the marriage. Over a year after treatment stopped, Rick called me complaining that Wendy wanted to leave him. He sounded paranoid and clinically depressed. He was now even more involved with drugs than in the past. He showed up once or twice, but he never really turned into a patient, and my last impression of the couple was that they were about to divorce. Whether this outcome is desirable in a couple's treatment of this sort is hard to say. In individual therapy, we congratulate ourselves when a masochistic wife manages to leave a neglectful husband. In family therapy, we tend more to wonder whether the marriage couldn't have worked after all. Kramer, as a secular therapist, thinks that this is a success. It was too effective. I think most Christians would say that this was a failure. I mean, we had a marriage got torn to shreds. We got gambling. We got adultery. Uh, the, the cure uh, led to just a different person being depressed. One thing I didn't read here is she wound up going to singles bars and their marriage and learned to play saxophone and flirting with men and running off with them and that kind of thing. I didn't quote that part. Um, I think Christians would be duty-bound to say Kramer blew it. Even though he thinks he did a great job, I think we'd say he blew it. And the reason he blew it is because his vision of reality was theologically incorrect. Um, Kramer does not see, when he looks at Rick and Wendy, he doesn't see two people made in the image of God. Uh, he doesn't see two people that are accountable to God for their behavior and for the orientation of their heart. He doesn't see the sin in Rick's life. He doesn't see the way that Rick's sin is leading Wendy to suffer profoundly. And he doesn't therefore see that his intervention, which offers more sin, creates more suffering and more pain and more separation. And we haven't even talked about their twin girls yet. And the reason he's confused about that is a theological reason that Kramer does not know God's standard for marriage and the servant um, the servant nature of marriage. Um, and so because he doesn't see all that, he can't see that his, his results are actually failing results and not successful results. And so Kramer's failure, even though he wants to call it a success, in fact, that's the reason I, I use it. I, I want to see there's a sharp disagreement here. Uh, what he sees as too effective, we would say, is a colossal failure, and it's a colossal failure because it was a theological failure. But it doesn't always look like that. I want to look at an example of counseling success from a secular person. And uh, here we'll look at um, a, a guy by the name of David Burns who wrote a best-selling book called Feeling Good. Uh, Dr. Burns is a leading proponent of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is, goodness gracious, I mean, it's got a lot of empirical evidence supporting its effectiveness, and that's why it's so popular uh, these days. Uh, Burns takes exception to Sigmund Freud. 
He thinks Sigmund Freud is wrong. Freud thought that you have to accept people's self-assessments of themselves. And Burns is going, that's completely wrong. You have to have people reject their self-assessments of themselves. That's what cognitive behavioral therapy is. And he talks about what he calls the triple column technique, where when people come in with difficulties, he has in one column, they write down their thoughts that they're having that are destructive or maladaptive. And you need to then in the second column record what's wrong with that thought. Why is that a problem? What difficulties is that creating? And then in the third column, you write down a response that would make more sense, that would be more adaptive. And he he commends that strategy to us, and he does it by talking about a woman named Gail. And here's what he says. Start by writing down your automatic thoughts and rational responses for 15 minutes every day for two weeks and see the effect this has on your mood. You may be surprised to note the beginning of a period of personal growth and healthy change in your self-image. This was the experience of Gail, a young secretary, whose sense of self-esteem was so low that she felt in constant danger of being criticized by friends. She was so sensitive to her roommate's request to help clean up their apartment after a party that she felt rejected and worthless. She was initially so pessimistic about her chances for feeling better that I could barely persuade her to give the triple column technique a try. When she reluctantly decided to try it, she was surprised to see how her self-esteem and mood began to undergo a rapid transformation. She reported that writing down the many negative thoughts that flowed through her mind during the day helped her gain objectivity. She stopped taking these thoughts so seriously. As a result of Gail's daily written exercises, she began to feel better and her interpersonal relationships improved by a quantum leap. Now, we're a lot less upset with David Burns than we are with Peter Kramer. That sounds like a win. Go good guys. Um, I would think, if we think, let's put a theological vision of reality on this, though, and I think we have to say that Burns's intervention with Gail is a mix of faithful and unfaithful theology. Start with the faithful. He's on to something with the triple column technique. I mean, he really is. Now, we would say so he pushes back against Freud. Uh, you don't just accept people's self-assessment. You reject it. I think we'd push back and say, well, neither do you just automatically reject it. What we do, what the Bible would urge us to do is take our self-perceptions and take them captive to the Bible. And so the Bible gets to adjudicate whether our responses are good or bad. So we don't just accept, we don't just reject. But, but the larger point is right, that we ought to take our thoughts captive. That's something that the triple column technique is doing. That sounds like biblical language of uh, 2 Corinthians 10. Take your thoughts captive to obey Christ. It sounds like the Apostle Paul when he says you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. So Burns is really onto something, but he's not right just because he stumbled on a good idea, merely. He's right because he's theologically correct, though he doesn't intend to be. He's right because God created us to be this way. He's right because Paul wrote down this idea in Romans 12 and Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 and 2 Corinthians 10 about 2,000 years before Ken Burns wrote it down. So Ken Burns has stumbled upon a biblical reality that makes his counseling effective. His, his intervention works because God made us to work that way, and he's theologically correct without even knowing that that's what he is. So he's faithful on accident, but then he's also unfaithful. Uh, because, number one, God's nowhere. He doesn't talk about God. Gail's not able to learn um, that God weighs in on who she is and what she's supposed to think and how she's supposed to act. Um, he doesn't see Gail as a person. 
This, this is one of the things when you, read, uh, when you read Burns' book, we don't have time to look at all of it, but he doesn't see people, he sees a collection of thoughts. And you start to get the sense that for him, counseling is a little more like solving an equation than really engaging with a person made in the image of God who needs care and love and prayer and support. Um, the second thing is that the standard that he has to gauge her thoughts is completely gone. There's no standard. So he, he spends some time talking about how Gail feels rejected and worthless when her roommate helps her clean up. And he says that it's not right that she feels that way. Well, we would probably agree with that. We don't want people feeling worthless. But should she feel badly uh, about being asked to clean up the room? Well, we don't know. We don't know because we don't know how her roommate asked her. Maybe her roommate asked her and was mean. In that case, we'd say, you know, you should feel badly because your roommate's mean and we need to help your roommate know how to speak the truth in love or help you know how to respond to ill treatment from people. Or maybe um, your roommate asks you just as nicely as your grandmother might, but you're really too sensitive and you don't like being told what to do and so you feel badly because that we just we'd have a lot of questions and we don't know yet but once we find out then we could expose that to what God says and we would know how to help her learn not to be overly sensitive or learn how to help her talk to a roommate about speaking more kindly or responding with uh, with mistreatment with grace and kindness but the point is Burns doesn't have any standard and uh, um, and we can know a standard because we have access to information that Burns hasn't considered in the Bible. Another area of unfaithfulness is he doesn't have a powerful, powerful path to change. He has a triple column technique. Now, I, again, I'm, listen to me. I'm very, very thankful for a practical intervention like that that is in the Bible in so many words. Uh, but there's no power to change in paper and pen, is there? I mean... This is a room full of people. I mean, we're, we're talking with people who cut their legs with an X-Acto knife to try to end their pain, just try to check out. We're talking to people who um, are looking at por- pornography for five hours a day because they just want to feel numb pleasure. Um, we're, um, we're talking to people who chug two pints of vodka in a row uh, because they just want to lose consciousness and forget about what's going on. Um, if you're going to break the power of those difficulties, you need more than an ink pen and a scratch piece of paper. Um, when, when the Apostle Paul, when he talks about renewing our minds, when he talks about taking our thoughts captive, we'll just take Colossians 3 as an example. He says we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. Well, when he says that, he's not merely saying that. That's two and a half chapters deep into where he's been talking about Jesus Christ coming as the God-man. He's been talking about his power to slay sin and death and the devil. He's been talking about how we are transformed by him when we draw near to him in faith. So when the Apostle Paul tells us to take our thoughts captive in Colossians 3, he's urging us to do that by the power of a resurrected Savior. He is the one who has the power to break canceled sin, as the hymn writer says. He's the one who has power to bring hope in the midst of comfort. So when we're having people renew their minds in a biblical sense, we're doing it with respect to the resources of Jesus, not the triple column technique. And that, as it turns out, makes all the difference in the world. Because where's the power to quit cutting your legs when your dad yells at you? Where is the power to leave your apartment when you want to look at porn? Where is the power 
uh, to call out for help when you want to chug booze? Where is the power? The Bible teaches uh, that the power is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, as much as we appreciate, and I really do, that Burns helped Gale, in the grand scheme of things, the theological commitments that he's chosen to reject are far more important than the theological commitments that he's chosen to accept. And even though there's an appearance of true success, which again we're grateful for, counseling success which honors Jesus Christ, which is based on the word of God, which leads to qualitative and lasting change at the level of the heart, that kind of change has eluded both counselor and counselee. And real change comes in the theological commitments not shared by David Burns, not shared with Gail and not observed by David Burns. Burns' counseling, though it looks like it worked, and we're thankful for the relief of some symptoms, it was actually, from a theological perspective, unsuccessful uh, because Burns' counsel turned Gail into a more successful worshiper of herself. He was able to help her live her life without Christ while feeling the pain of his absence less acutely. And even though she felt better, it was a counseling failure. And the failure is owing to a theological error. Now, that's, that's my crack at saying counseling is theological. And when secular people weigh in on counseling, they are making theological judgments and theological mistakes. And they're getting theological things right. Even whether it appears to work or not, they're weighing in on theological waters that they are ignorant of. As an unbeliever, you suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and so they don't, they don't know what they're doing. Now, secular psychology gained a foothold in the 20th century. Something else happened in the 20th century, and that was Christians, um, variously called Christian counselors, pastoral counseling, uh, Christian psychology, integration, uh, clinical pastoral education, you pick, the, you pick the phrase, Christians began to look to the resources of secular psychology uh, in a way that they had never done before. That was a historical novelty, as I, um, as I mentioned before. But they began to embrace secular counseling principles. So the 20th century sees the increase, the rise of secular counseling, and it also sees the embrace of those secular counseling principles by conservative Christians. Um, and and the biblical counseling movement is, is different than other Christian approaches to counseling in this way. The biblical counseling movement believes that the Bible is a sufficient counseling resource. I don't think that the Bible has everything you need to know um, about everything, but they do believe that God has on purpose revealed who we are, what's wrong with us, how to help in the pages of the Bible, and that is in fact one of the main functions of the Bible, is how to help us with the problems that we experience in living and that we come to counseling to seek help for. Everybody else on the counseling continuum um, rejects that to some extent. And to a greater or lesser degree, great salvos to the Bible and great salvos to psychology. There's a couple of, some people say there's four different approaches. Some people say there's two. Some people say there's eight. Some people say there's 12. But, but the big distinction is the kind of the, 
one-eyed cyclopses over here in the biblical counseling movement that are saying, hey, we think the Bible's sufficient. And then the other counseling approaches that say, well, the Bible's great, but you also need to supplement that with the resources of secular therapy. Um, and what I want to do is I want to talk about now with that understanding of the theological nature of agreement, that overlap and the area of distinction. So let me, let me give five areas of agreement and then two areas of disagreement. I think there's a lot of agreement. Obviously, because I got five and two. And I didn't even, I didn't even, I didn't even start out that way. I was like, I gotta have more areas of agreement than areas of disagreement. It's just as I think about this, it seems like we've got a lot in common. Here's the, here's the first area of agreement. Biblical counselors, and I'm gonna just say Christian counselors to talk about the, that broad group uh, sort of on the, on the other side of the continuum. Biblical counselors and Christian counselors have, for the most part, been located in Christian circles that are marked by conservatism. Uh, I'm not talking about political conservatism there. I'm talking about theological conservatism there. So, so for the most part, we're talking about people who love Jesus Christ, who love the Bible, who believe in the resurrection, who um, think you ought to go to church and be at church because the church is God's agency to advance his mission in the world. Um, we're talking about people who really believe the Bible in a very meaningful and true sense. We're talking about an area of agreement that's the most important area of agreement, and that is that we're brothers and sisters in Jesus. That's why it so burdened me that it seemed like for 30 or 40 years that there's so much trouble getting along. Uh, because good night. Uh, I mean, if, you, if you're a Christian, you've got to show it. And the way you show it as a Christian is by, the Apostle John says, loving the brethren. If you don't love the brethren, you don't love God. Um, so the area of agreement that's the most central area of agreement is the most central one there could be, and that is that we love Jesus together, and uh, we should be thankful for that. A second area of agreement is that biblical and Christian counselors each care for hurting people and want to help. It's, it's funny, I think this is why we debate so badly. Because when we debate, we're not doing what comes naturally to us. Uh, when we do what comes naturally to us, we're sitting down with somebody and trying to help them. We yell and scream and have these debates, and it's just not what we, it's not what any of us started out wanting to do. We want to help people. So it's helpful to me to realize that we got brothers and sisters in Jesus here who are disagreeing, but it's not a disagreement that's... Um, you know, I hate my neighbor who keeps throwing his trash in my yard. I mean, this is, like a, this is truly like a disagreement with somebody in your home. I mean, you're, you're part of the same family, and you're both trying to make this thing work. When we disagree, when biblical counselors have, have critiqued Christian counselors, it's been because from the bottom of our hearts we want to offer the best care possible to people with serious problems. And when Christian counselors have critiqued biblical counselors, it is because from the bottom of their hearts, they want to offer the best care possible to people with serious problems. Well, that's a big deal. You know, I, I th it makes me think, hey, we could tone down the rhetoric some. Here's the third area of agreement. Biblical and Christian counselors agree that psychologists make observations which are helpful. Um, nobody thinks Christian counselors don't believe that because their kind of model is based off, hey, we need... We need to use this. Biblical counseling has been critiqued for rejecting science and being anti-science because they think that uh, the Bible is sufficient counseling resource. I don't know anybody, I don't know any biblical counselor who rejects psychological science. 
I, I don't know a single person. In fact, the person who has the worst reputation for being a big redneck uh, and an idiot about rejecting science is Jay Adams, uh, who had been lampooned as rejecting. And there's areas to critique Jay Adams, and I've, I've critiqued him in a few areas. Um, but he wasn't wrong on this. Uh, in fact, in the very first pages of Competent to Counsel, which was the very first book uh, in the biblical counseling movement, kind of started the thing. This is what he says. He says, I do not wish to disregard science. Rather, I welcome it as a useful adjunct for the purposes of illustrating and filling in generalizations with specifics and challenging wrong human interpretations of scripture, thereby forcing the student to restudy the scriptures. However, in the area of psychiatry, science has largely given way to humanistic philosophy and gross speculation. Uh, a few years later in another book called What About Nuthetic Counseling, uh, it's a Q&A book, and I think the third question is, uh, can Christians learn anything from psychology? And his answer is, of course they can. I know I have. I've learned a lot. It's very helpful. That answer surprised you, didn't it? Um, but, uh, but the point is, from the very earliest of his works, he's saying, hey, we're for science. We're for true information outside the Bible. What he objects to is when a faulty vision of life that is at odds with God's worldview masquerades as science. And um, that, that was and still is, I think, the fundamental uh, objection of biblical counseling. When, when biblical counseling has been critical of psychology, uh, they haven't critiqued the science, but the secular interventions. That's why I try to be really careful and not talk about rejecting science, but rejecting ther secular therapeutic interventions. Um, different people's secular ideas about what would help. Here's a fourth area of agreement. Biblical and Christian counselors agree that secular psychology gets things wrong. So nobody thinks that biblical counselors don't believe this. Everybody's like, yeah, the biblical counselors think they get everything wrong. This is on the other side of the same coin, though. Um, Christian counselors, those on the other side of the continuum from biblical counseling, they believe that psychologists get things wrong and that they are secular. Uh, here is uh, Stan Jones and Richard Butman speaking about this in a very influential book called Modern Psychotherapies. They say the destructive mode of functioning, that is the, the part of integration, as they call it, where you're actually talking about the parts of psychology that are bad and that we do not use. They call that the destructive mode, and they say that mode of functioning is vital for Christians today. There are times when the best response to the Christian is to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. But we contend that the appropriate time for such apologetic efforts is when the views actually are raised up against God. In other words, when the views of romantic humanist Carl Rogers, for instance, are presented as ultimately satisfying answers to the major questions of life, the right Christian response is to point out critical flaws in the approach and to reject his views. I think people in the biblical counseling movement have been guilty of slander against people with different counseling approaches than we uh, because they just say, well, they just take it all. They just swallow it whole. And that is not true. And nobody can say that Stan Jones is not a leader in the uh, integration, um, Christian counseling, pastoral counseling movement. Um, a lot of people have followed. In fact, everybody I've ever talked to thinks the argument they're making for integration in this book is the best they've ever read. Now, we're going to disagree on how and when and what to reject. But it is slander against brothers in Christ who have a different counseling approach to say that, well, they just take everything secularists have to offer un uncritically. That's not true, and when we say it, we should repent. Here's a fifth area of agreement, final one I'll talk about. Biblical and Christian counselors um, 
uh, agree that the presence of a problem does not mean that the solution for that problem is necessarily counseling. Here's what that means. It means everybody thinks people have medical problems. Everybody thinks people have physiological disorders and uh, m things that don't function correctly and they need medical doctors, they need pharmaceutical intervention. Um, everybody thinks that. Uh, a belief in the sufficiency of God's word uh, does not mean that people don't have physical problems. In fact, a belief in the sufficiency of God's word requires an embrace of uh, physical problems because the Bible says that we're a body and a soul. So as soon as the Bible says that, we've got to start talking about physiological issues for which the Bible is not sufficient to address. If you had to have bypass surgery, um, and right before the ether kicked in, the surgeon was standing over you with his Bible open to John and said, don't worry, I'm going to do everything it says. You'd be nervous about that. <laughs> you, you would be happy that this person loves John, but that's not, that's not going to help him saw your sternum open and reconnect the wires, you know? Um, so, uh, so the Bible requires us to believe uh, and embrace physiological problems and physiological care. Now, again, figuring out what's physiological and what's spiritual is harder than it sounds, but, uh, but we agree with those things. That's the areas of overlap, as it, as it seems to me. Here's the two areas of disagreement. First, we continue to disagree that it's necessary to use secular counseling techniques to help people in the counseling relationship. Um, it's not about neuroscience. It's not about medication. Um, it's not about do people have physical problems. Um, it's about will we use secular counseling techniques in the counseling room? Um, in spite of the agreement about the possibility of psychologists to make true observation, if we're going to talk about two groups, which is just easier for us here, our, our two movements are at odds when it comes to how necessary it is to use counseling interventions from outside the Bible. The argument of Christian counselors has been really clear. You need to use secular counseling interventions. This is Mark McMahon writing in a book called Integrative Psychotherapy. He says, by way of analogy, consider the temperature system in an automobile. On one end of the continuum is hot air, on the other end is cool air. Often a person selects a temperature in the middle, mixing the hot and cool air for the desired effect. The climate is more desirable and adaptable by combining both sources of air than it could be if only one source of air were available. In this analogy, we're considering two sources of information, psychology and the Christian faith. To what extent do we let the air from both systems mix in order to achieve an optimal balance? Or should we trust only one source of information and not the other? Reciprocal interaction involves the assumption that caring for people's souls is best done by bringing together truth from both sources. So it's pretty clear. Uh, the Bible's a, Mark McMahon loves the Bible. Uh, he appreciates the Bible. He thinks you need the Bible. He also thinks that it is not enough to address the counseling problems that people face, and that's where uh, secular approaches come in. The biblical counseling movement really does not agree with that. This is David Pallison, who's a leader in the biblical counseling movement, talking about this. He says, do secular disciplines have anything to offer the methodology of biblical counseling? It's not... Not do we have anything to learn from them, but does it act, do we actually use it in counseling? He says the answer is a flat no. 
Scripture provides the system for biblical counseling. Other disciplines, history, anthropology, literature, sociology, psychology, biology, business, political science may be useful in a variety of secondary ways to the pastor and the biblical counselor, but such disciplines can never provide a system for understanding and counseling people. Um, the biblical counseling movement is where Pallison is. Others are where McMinn is. And that's where we need to continue to have a conversation. Here's a second area of disagreement. We continue to disagree that the Bible is a sufficient counseling resource. So this is on the other side of the coin. Um, if the Bible is sufficient, if the Bible gives you what you need to understand counseling problems and chart counseling solutions, then you don't need anything else, right? But if it's insufficient as a counseling resource, then you better go find something else because you don't have enough to help people. Um, there is a disagreement that the Bible is really about at the heart of it and the fullness of it is about the problems that, uh, that people have. Here's what Stan Jones says again in another book. There are many topics to which scripture does not speak. How neurons work, how the brain synthesizes mathematical or emotional information, the types of memory are the best way to conceptualize personality traits. Because scripture and the accumulated wisdom of the church and theology leaves many areas of uncertainty and understanding and helping humanity, we approach psychology expecting that we can learn and go, grow through our engagement with it. Biblical counselors just disagree with that. We think it's too quick to conclude what is not and what is in the Bible and what's relevant in secular psychology. So, for example, Jones will say, hey, you know, the Bible doesn't have any information about neurons work and how the brain categorizes information. And that is true, but nobody's talking about that in counseling either. Uh, nobody, nobody today is going to counsel anybody and say, you know what you need is to know how your neurons work. And then you'll want to stay married to your husband. Um, we're, we're not doing that. We're, we're, um, we're talking about wisdom issues. Uh, and so that's where the debate is. Here is the overall point, areas of agreement and disagreement. It's a theological debate. No way around it. When we agree that the discipline of psychology makes true observations, that agreement is based on a theological commitment that God has given grace to all people to understand truth. When we agree that the discipline of psychology gets many things wrong, we agree based on a theological commitment that sin has stained human thinking and we're messed up. When we agree that not all problems are counseling problems, we're making an agreement based on what the Bible says about how we're constituted, body and soul. When we agree... Um, or rather when we disagree and advocate for competing positions by making statements about the content of scripture, we're making a theological statement. What did God say? What did he not say in the Bible? The point is that these are theological claims requiring theological knowledge, demanding theological investigation, and resulting in the articulation of a theological position. Um, counseling is theological, and there just isn't any way to get around it, and our areas of agreement and disagreement are intrinsically related to that. Let me, um, let me just say three things real quickly, just a minute or two here. Um, the Bible, just by way of a theological commitment that, that I hope can be the next step in the conversation. I would hope that we could talk about the fact that the Bible helps. So Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God gave us the Bible to help us. 
And that's not comforting if the help is only for small, teeny, tiny problems. If, if, if the Bible is a lamp unto our feet when it's a small problem, that's fine. But if it's not a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, when we really need it, when he left and said, I don't love you anymore. Um, when the doctor says, um, um, you have bipolar disorder and you're going to have it for the rest of your life. Um, if, if the Bible can't offer help and hope then, then what good is the help and hope that it has to offer? Second thing is that Jesus helps. In, uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, the author says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is there when we are in trouble. Jesus is there when our folks are in trouble. And we must speak of him. We must speak of him. Um, In fact, Jesus is so sure of this that he commands us to do it go into the world and make disciples of all men, teaching them to obey everything I've taught you. Hold them with you to the end of the age. Jesus demands in the Great Commission that our conversations have to be about him. We don't have the choice to talk or not to talk about Jesus. Jesus says, I have all authority and you must point people to me. He's not doing that because he's a despot. He's doing that because he wants to help in time of need. The Apostle Paul drank the Kool-Aid and said, uh, I determined to know nothing while I was with you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I think that, I'm hoping, I'm praying that uh, as we have honest conversations that we can at least agree that as Christians, the Bible helps and we need to talk about the Bible. And there is an omnipotent, sovereign God who's conquered every problem and he's sitting on his throne waiting for us to approach him with mercy and grace when we need it and that we would go to him and we'd lead our people to him and um, that we would follow Jesus' commands and realize that speaking of him is not an option. Uh, but, um, but we must submit to him who has authority over uh, all and has been entrusted with that authority to help us and, uh, and those God sends to us for help. So um, that's all I'll say about that. Um, we have 20 minutes left for questions, criticisms, Expressions of consternation, funny stories. Yeah. We know that all sickness is due to sin. Is there scientific evidence that things like bipolar or schizophrenia are actually medically induced by something wrong in, in, in the brain? Yeah. Or is it more just? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so you're you're right that every problem is owing to sin. Uh, I mean, we're gonna we're gonna confront sin uh, when we're guilty of our own personal sin. 
we're going to confront sin when we're broken because of the sin of other people against us. You're married to a jerk or you got a boss who's mean and whatever. Uh, and we're going to experience sin when we, when we live in a fallen world. And that's where we're talking about diseases and that kind of thing. And so, so we know that there are medical and organic problems. And it does not surprise us to find out that there would be medical and organic problems in our brain that would uh, alter the way that we are supposed to function. The question is, how do we know when we're talking about a, a problem with organic brain functioning? And how do we know when uh, we're talking about a problem in living? From a scientific perspective, there's a lot that we're learning about the brain. I mean, the brain is kind of the, the big frontier, and we, don't, we just don't know so much about it. So when we talk about what's organic, we're talking, we're, there's probably a continuum. Um, so, I mean, on the one hand, you've got things that are very obviously diseases. So you're talking about brain tumor, you're talking about Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease and dementia, and that's where we actually see brain decay and brain problems. Um, then you've got things that we speculate about, so schizophrenia. There, for example, you mentioned schizophrenia. We, we don't know. Um, all the medical people that I'm talking to are saying, and we've got numerous medical d doctors who are certified with ACBC, and they're saying that the brain science on, um, uh, on schizophrenia is looking increasingly like we're talking about a, an organic problem that we do not understand yet. Uh, there's a lot of evidence in that regard. And, and, and then we're talking, you know, you mentioned bipolar. Bipolar is a little bit different. So you can do a brain scan, a PET scan, and you'll see that people who've been diagnosed with bipolar, their brain looks different than somebody who's not been diagnosed with bipolar. What nobody knows is whether that brain abnormality is the cause or consequence of a problem. So it's, it's hard to know whether we're talking about a medical problem or a spiritual problem. So in the biblical counseling movement, what we recommend is, is two things. Number one, when, when somebody is manifesting with an extreme problem that might be physical, at all, I mean, this is something new, this is something really extreme, it's, it's maybe a bit bizarre. We refer to medical professionals and medical advice, and, uh, and we, trust that re we trust that advice. It's, uh, it's counseling malpractice to uh, go against a physician for somebody who's not a licensed medical doctor to contradict a licensed medical doctor, tell them to come off their drugs, or that diagnosis wasn't correct, or something like that. That's unethical because you don't have the knowledge, the training, the credentials to be able to do that. Uh, and then the other thing that we're doing is we're saying, hey, uh, Jesus tells us in places like um, Mark 7 and Matthew 14 that sin comes out of the heart. So even though somebody might have a, a medical problem, we can still deal with their moral issues. So a great example of that is a couple I counseled a few years ago. He was diagnosed with bipolar and was on medication. And people have a lot of medication guilt. Um, and he said, you know, I've been diagnosed with this, and I don't want to be on these drugs. Do you think I should come off? And I'm like, I think that's a matter between you and your doctor. I think you need to, you know, you need to go back. If you have questions or concerns about how that's making you feel, you need to go back to that doctor who put you on that medicine and talk about a plan to be weaned off or talk about a plan to up the dosage or tweak the med or whatever, but that's between you and your doctor. But then this other issue comes up where uh, two days before they come into counseling, uh, he got angry with her, yelled at her, um, took the phone that was attached to the wall. Do you remember that? When they used to have phones attached to the actual <laughs> wall? He yanked it out of the wall and threw it at her. Missed her by God's grace, but left a mark in the wall. 
And he said, you know, he said something like, I just wish I didn't have bipolar so I didn't act like that. And I'm going, well, hold on a second. Jesus says, you, you talk to your doctor about the medical problem, but Jesus says that when you're angry, that comes out of your heart. So medical problems might be really tempting. It might weaken you. Uh, but Jesus can give you grace to be a kind, loving man to your wife. And so, so we're dealing with the spiritual, the emotional, the sort of problems in living and leaving it to the medical doctors to deal with medical problems. Is that helpful? Great. <laughs> In that whole concept, you just talked about how much, or do you think any of this could be uh, demonic in any way? I don't want to paint a brush that's no, yeah. all there, but mm -hmm. we have to realize that there's a possibility that that's sure. involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when a biblical approach to extreme problems, I heard one guy say, I think biblical counselors think that whenever there's an extreme problem, the devil has a hold of somebody. And I'm like, oh gosh, that's not true. Uh, don't tell anybody that. Uh, but, um, but I think if we were going to talk about a biblical understanding of extreme problems, you look in the Bible and people have extreme issues for a couple of different reasons. There is um, physical, organic issues. So the Bible teaches us that we can have a physical problem that would cause us to act strangely, and that's all that body-soul stuff that I mentioned. Um, some people are cursed by God. So Nebuchadnezzar, you know, in Daniel 4, he, gets, he was arrogant, and God says, you know what, I'm going to show you who's the king of the universe. And he said, you're going to go out and you're going to eat grass in the field until you will confess that I am the Lord of heaven and earth. So, I mean, you got a guy presumably crawling around on his hands and knees speaking nonsense and eating grass, he'd go to a mental institution today. But he was cursed by God, and he needed to humble himself. Um, you've got the prophets of Baal who are engaged in ecstatic worship, and they're cutting themselves and screaming. Uh, we would say that's a serious problem, but they, were, they had given their hearts over to idols. Um, you've got people who are suffering. Job. Job shaved his hair, scraped his body, with broken pieces of pot and sat down in the dust and cried for a long time. I think, listen, I know good people in churches I've pastored that would be like, Job, get yourself together here. You know, I mean, it's sad, but you're naked and come on, you know. Uh, but, but we would say, I mean, you would have people in your churches looking at Job today saying, I think he needs to be hospitalized. But he was broken with despair over pain that had entered into his life. And then a fifth category is... Uh, demoniacs. So you do have um, uh, people in the Bible who are breaking chains and screaming and slashing themselves who are uh, possessed by the devil. Now this is, this is really uncomfortable for some people, but if we're going to believe the Bible, we've got to believe it. And the Bible says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour and we need to resist him firm in our faith. And so I think that the devil is one cause of extreme problems, but so is medical problems and so is being cursed by God and so is suffering and giving your heart over to idols and all kinds of things. So I think it's one among many. All right. Well, 
it's funny because usually when you have Q and A, it, it takes like ten minutes to get one person to ask a question, and then you're like go over with everybody trying to squeeze in. But uh, that's quite all right. There's no requirement for questions. So, but um, I just uh, wanted to have there be an opportunity to have this be two-sided and not just one-sided. And I'll just just end by saying that we are really grateful that you guys would want to come and have breakfast with us. And uh, I really hope that we can uh, nurture a relationship over the next couple of years together. And uh, I'd be happy to meet with you while I'm in town and uh, be friends, be brothers in Christ, and find out how we can grow together to help the people that we care so much about and want to minister the best care to. So thank you guys for uh, letting me come and talk for a little bit. Maybe I'll pray, and then we've still got, and you're welcome, I think we've got the room till 10. So let me pray, and then we can talk a little bit, or you can go to a meeting or whatever you need to do. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Sorry about that. Sure. I mean, I'm thinking, like, this is a very well, like, lay people, pastors, counselors, things like that, but Absolutely. Um, one thing, just to play off one verse that I looked at in Hebrews four. Um, so I, I think I think the big practical takeaway before I zoom in on Hebrews four is let's let's point people to Jesus. I mean that is that is what has distinguished Christians from absolutely everybody else for a couple of millennia. Uh, and so if we have, if we've lost our nerve to talk about Jesus, we don't have a problem with our counseling approach. We have a problem with our commitment to Jesus. And that is not me throwing a rock. That is me confessing my own sin. Haven't we all been having a conversation with somebody? It was our next door neighbor. It was somebody we're billing insurance for a conversation with. It was a college student. And we knew we needed to say, you know, you need to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And he will forgive you. Um, we, we, there's been times every one of us knew we needed to say it and we didn't say it and so I think we should just make a baseline Christian commitment that the Great Commission applies to us uh, it doesn't matter if we're in the Philippines or if we're in China or if we're in England I mean the, the Great Commission applies to us when we're at a coffee shop this afternoon and the power is in the gospel so so when people come to us and they say, I wish I was dead, Jesus can crack through that. Jesus, the resurrected king of the cosmos, can crack through that. And so let's, let's speak of Jesus, and whether it's our neighbor or a conversation we're getting paid for or a college student or somebody in here, um, let's be people who speak of Jesus, and let's be people who repent when we don't do that. And I, I have to do that, and we all have to do that. Um, a second thing is we need to grow in wisdom to speak about Jesus. Uh, because it's one thing to say, you know, if, if you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, he will forgive you. He will give you hope and a future. And that's better than nothing. Uh, that's pretty good, actually. Uh, it's better than go to Vegas and lose money. Um, um, but we can do better than that. We can learn how with wisdom and skill and finesse to apply that trust in Jesus to very specific problems. So I always say kind of the, the, kind of the counseling palette uh, is anger issues, anxiety issues, depression issues, 
avoidance issues like eating problems and sexual dysfunctions and um, pornography, all the, the kind of all the avoidance. I want to check out my life's hard. And I want to go do something that's easy. Drunkenness, all those things. Avoidance categories, uh, conflict resolution, decision making. I think are the six big ones. Um, let's let's determine you could you could read a book about each one of those things a year and be growing in your wisdom and your knowledge about how Jesus helps you turn from avoiding your problem to leaning on him in faith hope and love you could read a great book a year about how Jesus transforms a heart of angry rage into a heart of peace and love um, so let's just grow in skill and and uh, and let's be honest, when somebody comes to, comes, you know, I've got, everybody has their sort of bailiwicks. And I have, you know, mo- 95% of the counseling I've done in the last 15 years has been marriage counseling. Um, and uh, so that's a focus for me. Um, but, um, uh, but all of us, whatever our focus is, I mean, we're going we're gonna to have somebody come and sit down and we're going to say, I've never heard that before. Um, and we can just be honest and say, you know, I've never, I'm, I'm not exactly sure exactly what to say, but I'm, I, but I'm going to work with you to figure this out. Uh, there are other people who can help, and we're going we're gonna to work on it together and figure it out. So grow in wisdom and skill. So let's speak about Jesus. Let's grow in wisdom and skill about how to speak about Jesus with specific problems. And then the third thing, and this is where I'd zoom in on Hebrews 4, we could pray with people. This is a huge deal. This is not say it because you're a Christian. This is a huge deal. The author of Hebrews says, if you pray when you're in trouble, Jesus is sitting on his throne, and he will give you mercy and grace to help. Amen. That's the truth. I mean, so if you're sitting there and you are completely blown over about this person's problem, um, you can say, let's talk to Jesus. Let's pray. And say, Jesus, would you help? Would you draw near and meet this person with mercy and grace that they need? Would you draw near and help me? with mercy and grace in it because I so want to help this person and I'm overwhelmed. Listen, that five-minute prayer will have more power in it than six hours of meandering counseling while you're trying to figure something out. So, I mean, this, we really believe these things, right? I mean, we really believe that Jesus is an ascended king who is sitting on a throne and will help. And so while we're growing in wisdom and skill, let's ask him for the help that he promises. Yes? So can you speak for a little <laughs> Sure. Yeah, and this is this is a hard one for me because, um, on the one hand, I, you need to be there. I mean, you know, you're going to talk. You're going to have an occasion to talk uh, about Jesus with people that I'm never ever going to lay eyes on. So, Godspeed. <laughs> but it's also hard because there are secular ethical standards that are imposed on you that Jesus disagrees with. Um, and I mean, if you if you're forced into a corner. You have to choose whether you will please God or please man, and you should please God. (laughs) The people that I know who are committed to biblical counseling and are working in these kinds of fields where there's ethical standards from the outside, that there's there's ways to 
get around it. Now, I, let, don't hear me saying that we need to have integrity in this and we need to shoot straight. Um, but, um, but there are legitimate ways to get around it. Uh, so one guy, one biblical counseling major that we have at Southern, he works um, for a secular counseling center that's funded by the government, and they have these rules that you can't proselytize. Um, but he's a very he counsels children. He's very effective, and they don't want to lose him. And they say, You're, you can talk about Jesus and the Bible if they bring it up and ask you questions. So he covered his office walls in pictures of Jesus and Bible stories and that kind of thing. And so these kids see this bright picture of Noah and the flood and they're like, what's that? And, and he's able to have that conversation. So, so that, is, that is one way where he is trying to be honest about who he is and have integrity but still submit to Jesus. At the end of the day, we have to obey Jesus, and it is—it is—it's oh, just wrong to not speak of Jesus because man told us to. When Jesus said, D "Don't you understand who really is the help here? Don't you understand that I'm the one who has mercy and grace?" So it's—it's—it's so—it's not only wrong, but it's also flawed because we're blocking people from help. Uh, but you have to do that with integrity. And, you know, and honestly, the best thing I have found is just being a really good counselor. When you like really help people, people want to keep you around. So, you know, if you're a mean, nasty jerk, which I can tell you're not, you apologized for your voice and it's not even your fault. Um, um, uh, if you're a mean, nasty jerk who doesn't help anybody, well, everybody's happy to get rid of you. But if you're a kind, warm person who's happy to hear other people's perspective and, and happy to say, hey, here's what the Lord is doing in my life and here's how he's helped me and uh, have integrity, then, then that's what I would... That's what I'd try to do, but these are really hard things. And I, I kind of get a pass because I've worked in churches and in Christian ministries for all my... So by the time people are coming to me, they've signed up for biblical counseling, and it's a little different with you. Uh, did I see a hand? What? Oh, yeah. Sure. No. Yeah. Well, yeah. So what I was where where the psychological techniques um, where those are going to be accurate is where they agree with what God already said. So so that what you will find is that the the counseling approaches that are the most helpful are the counseling approaches that piggyback the most off resources in the Bible. So, for example, I was talking at a at a Presbyterian seminary Monday with their counseling students and faculty. And one of the faculty members said, you know, you're, he had asked me if there's ever a time when biblical counseling is contraindicated, if there's ever a time when you don't need it and you need another counseling approach. And I said, no, because if God weighs in on our life, no, we're not talking about medical issues. We're not talking about learning disability testing and that kind of thing. But, but when we're talking about a life issue, theological wisdom, that kind of thing, no, it's not. And he said, well, that just, that puzzles me because... There's all this research, and it's exactly correct, that there are all of these things that just are going to work. A lot of people are going to get better, whether they have counseling or not. Uh, whoever their counselor is, whether they're on medication or not, a lot of people are just going to get better. But in counseling, there's research that if people have confidence in the method, if people have good rapport with their counselor, 
and all kinds of other things, um, that things are going to get better. And he said, so it seems weird to me that you would insist on biblical counseling when there's evidence that other approaches work. And I'm saying, well, hey, two things. Number one, I'm not saying no approach works. I'm saying, do they work in the way God wants them to work? So in other words, Gail felt better about herself, but she didn't trust the Lord more. So she's still going to hell before counseling and after counseling. She didn't trust Jesus before counseling. She didn't trust Jesus after counseling. I don't want us to be content with we make her comfortable while she's still a child of wrath. So that number one. Number two is the reason all those commonalities are in place is because God made us work a certain way. God made us to not get better quickly, but over time. There's reasons for that that we could talk about on another day, but change is not fast. You don't grieve your spouse one evening and then wake up the next morning and you're ready to get married again, hopefully. Um, you, uh, God made us to be people who exist in community. And so it helps me when, we, when you love me in a relationship of care. Um, and, and we're people who need hope. And so God made us to be that way. So the reason those things are true are for reasons that are entirely unsurprising. Uh, in the Bible. So we can say yes, absolutely, but there is more. And so I would say, I guess I would say use discernment. I think I would say, I think I might rather say let's cut out the middleman. And if, if God has already spoken about these things, then let's examine the text of scripture to see what he says and make that our pursuit and not have to examine the corpus of secular psychology and separate the wheat from the chaff. Does that make sense? That's 10, so I'll respect your time now. But hey, thank you guys very much. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to getting to know you more. Thank you.